Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Are you trying to achieve the impossible or just get through this week? What are the necessary keys for turning your work into play? And is grinding yourself to a pulp really the best way to accomplish a big goal? Best-selling author and flow research collective guru, Stephen Kotler returns to discuss his new book. It's called The Art of Impossible, A Peak Performance Primer. Today, we explore the basics of peak performance, burnout, and smart goals. Whether you're trying to change the world or just get through a lousy week, these are the keys to leveling up without burning out. You know, the guys that I'm coaching, guys that have are at this stage in their life where they've, you know, they're in a bit of a transition, right? And and they're what seems impossible to them is okay. I want to experience greater meaning. I want to experience passion, purpose. I want to level up professionally. That seems impossible to, to, to start to shift lanes, maybe take on this big goal that we're talking about here. And their concern is that this is just going to be a giant pain in the ass. This is, I'm already feeling tapped out. I'm already fearful of, of taking on any more risk. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely fearful of failing and looking like a moron. Um, and so his worry is like, even if I pursue this goal, even if I accomplish this goal, what's going to be the cost? Am I going to grind my body to a pulp? Am I going to grind my relationships, my family, you know, all of those types of things. So he's in this place of shit. Is it really going to be worthwhile? It seems impossible. Uh, is there a way that we can take the concepts from your book and help him apply them in his world so that he can a accomplish these goals, but also level up and really have the, the intrinsic rewards of those of, of accomplishing that without, you know, grinding himself to this pulp, without getting into that burnout state. Flurries of collective trains about a thousand people a month. I would say 65% of them are overstressed C-suite executives who want to level up without burning out. So like this, is, we probably have the largest data set in the world on the neurophysiology of peak performance for overstressed executives who write like, and on the other side of the coin, we also, this has been awesome. I love 
power women. They're, they make me, they're just some of my favorite people in the universe. Um, and, uh, so the other half of the group that we tend to train the most is women who are roughly in the same spot, but they've come through child rearing and they've got a passion, they got a purpose and they want to get after it in their forties, right? They're killers. They had some kind of killer career, paused it to do this. And now they're coming back. And usually much like the men, they've got a different set of values, different set of goals, want to make a bigger contribution, want to be more aligned with passion and purpose. So I've seen this. Um, I get to see this, I think from both genders and both sides. Um, and as I said, like a thousand people a month gets you enormous data sets pretty quickly. Um, cause we measure everything, of course. Great. I want to set that context because I think it's easy to just be like, oh, they're talking about those other guys. They're talking about, you know, that. Yeah, no, I, I will, like, I, I, you know, that's the difference between capital I and small I impossible. Define impossible then. Let me back it up one step and start with one slightly larger idea, which is I'm going to be talking a lot about peak performance. And what do I mean by peak performance? Peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. The group of people that I have spent my entire career studying to kind of help identify this the neurobiology of peak performance are those people who have accomplished so-called capital I impossible, that which has never been done. This, we could be talking about Laird Hamilton surfing the millennium wave, right? A feat that's never, never been seen before. And surfing, we could be talking about Elon Musk founding, you know, his companies in, in ways that nobody thought you could found a company or make a dent and taking on the entire auto industry. This could be all the maverick innovators I wrote about in books like Tomorrowland, who literally took sci-fi ideas, bionics, AI, and turned them into sci-fi technologies here in the 21st century, did the impossible dream of the future. So that's who I studied, capital I impossible. They literally changed history. They did that which has never been done. The book, Art of Impossible, and the, the sort of the breakdown of all this is meant to be used by people who are interested in what I call lowercase i impossible. Lowercase i impossible is all that stuff that we think is impossible for ourselves. And there's a wide variety of stuff here. This could, I always, the example I always give is I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio in uh, the 1970s and early 80s. It was a blue collar steel mill town that went bankrupt. The steel mill shut down. You know, it, it had totally collapsed. And from the time I was five or six, I wanted to be a writer. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how you'd become a writer. There was no cable TV. There was no internet. There were few books. There was no one to ask, right? It was, there was no clear path from where I was, point A, and where I wanted to go, point B. And what anybody knew, statistically, not the greatest odds of success, right? So what are other small lie impossibles that a lot of people deal with? How do you get paid for doing what you love or even like? That's a small lie impossible. How do you rise out of poverty? How do you overcome deep trauma? How do you become a successful entrepreneur or artist, right? In all of these and way more, um, how do you get overcome addiction? There's not a really clear path between A and B and statistically not the greatest odds of success. And here's the cool thing because peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. The same biology that helps us accomplish capital I impossible is the same biology that helps us accomplish small I impossible. And if you're listening to me and you're like, dude, shut up, man. I'm just trying to get through Monday. I'd like to be a little more productive. I'd like it to be a little calmer at home. And, you know, I'm just like, I'm paying bills here, man, and trying to survive. And can I, and it turns out 
the toolkit's the same because the biology is the same. So even if you're just trying to get through Monday, the skills that are going to get you through Monday, they're going to make you more productive, calm you down, et cetera, et cetera, make your life a little more rewarding and interesting than the same skills. Okay. Let's rewind. There's some big stuff in there because I'm imagining a guy out there that thinks he's looking for an edge or he is looking for an edge. He's not, he's probably not even considering his biology, as you say, much less his neurobiology. He's not sleeping well. He's not doing these practices. He's not, you know, some of the things that you underline in the book that you really emphasize in the book. Why is that such a big component? Because in his world, he probably thinks he just needs new ideas. He needs a new mindset. He needs a new perspective. But you're, you were saying we got to start with the mechanism itself. We've got to come I, back. Well, so listen to what you just said. He needs a new mindset. He needs a new perspective. He needs. So what is perspective in the brain? What does it mean to have a new perspective? And what are the conditions you need to get that new perspective? Let's just take that. So let's start with something really simple. There's a portion of the brain known as the anterior cingulate cortex. And it does a lot of different things. But one of the things it does is it helps us establish connections between ideas. So information comes in from the environment. We gather it with our senses. And this part of the brain says, oh, this is how it links to that. And it decides how far out the links go. So the more fear you have, the more anxiety you have, the less likely this portion of your brain will find far-flung connections between ideas. The reason is the more fear, the more the brain goes, ooh, wait, fear, anxiety, danger, what is tried, true, logical, what works every time. The extreme example, the example everybody knows, is fight or flight. Right? You're up against a life-threatening danger, and your brain says, no, 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 no choice paralysis. You've got three options. You can fight, you can flee, or you can freeze. Those are your choices. A little bit of anxiety does the same thing, and it's the anterior cingulate cortex that sort of governs it. If you want new ideas, if you want new perspectives, what do you have to do? A couple of things you have to do. One is be in a good mood. Lower your anxiety levels. Literally, a good mood is correlated with creativity for this very reason. Well, how do you tip your mood? Well, the science tells us it's either a gratitude practice, a mindfulness practice, a regular exercise, or some combination thereof are the biggest, most effective interventions to calm your nervous system down and put you in a better mood, right? So, like, we know what's going on in the brain. We know what the tools are. And I can tell you neurobiologically how and why gratitude works. And maybe you don't need to know that, but for people who are wired like me, who just need to know how things work before that I won't take anything on faith. I need to know that there's kind of basic mechanism underneath here. I don't, I'm not interested in fairy tales and stuff that doesn't work. Great. Great. I think that's this, this, this part of him where he might be focused on his mind while he's neglecting his brain, the organ, the, 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 the body and the brain, they're actually their functionality and then putting himself into it that they impact the mood that he's in. Therefore it impacts his ability to get into a, a certain state to be able to maximize or optimize the, the opportunities that are around him. If he's in a state of anxiety, he's in that, that place of fight, flight, freeze. He's not going to be in a creative state, a place to see opportunities. He's just trying to cover his ass. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. And we've covered that a lot on the show, but it really, I think we just, I can't, I don't think we can hit it enough where there's this, this point of like, I'll get to that later instead of I start from that place. So I want to just want to drill this in that just shifting your thinking isn't enough that we've really got to start with the biology, as you said. Um, why is it that, that guys are, are burning out then when they're coming towards us? Because 
you know, there's so much of this, which is, it, there seems to be actually part of the culture that's, that loves this thing. Like, yeah, let's pick a big goal and then grind yourself to a pulp, gr- you know, do this hustle kind of thing. Whereas when, when I'm reading your stuff and going into this, when we're talking about, you know, people like me that grew up skating or they were artists or whatever, there's a state of flow that they get into. It doesn't feel like grinding. If peak performance is nothing more than getting our biology working for us rather than against us, right? What is, what's the big deal? Like why, why would we, the big deal is you get farther faster with a lot less fuss. You're designed to go fast. You're designed literally to go after big goals, but it's a system. It works in a certain order. Like any system, right? There's a certain order it works best in. You can sort of, you can use a vacuum cleaner to hammer in a nail. You will probably hammer in the nail. But <laughs> the system was designed to suck up dirt. And sooner or later, you're going to break the vacuum, right? Like it works, but not quite, right? And you pointed out there is this state of flow. And if you are just taking the grinded out approach, you are not getting into flow. And flow is. Now, flow is necessary for peak performance, but not sufficient. So there's a little more to the story than just flow. But flow is technically defined as an optical state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. It is what evolution, it's how evolution shaped biological organisms for peak performance. It's a universal state. We can all get into flow. So it's a tool that's inside all of us. The amplifications are enormous, depending on whose numbers you're going by and what skills, but motivation, grit, creativity, learning rates, cooperation, collaboration, empathy, environmental awareness, the very perspective you're talking about, um, and creativity and innovation. And this is just on the cognitive side, not the physical side. They all skyrocket. So there's nothing else in the world. I mean, you're talking, depending on whose studies you're looking at, five, six, seven hundred percent above baseline. This, these are spectacular spectacular increases in these numbers now they're not you don't live in flow right there you drop in and out and you but you can learn to use it you can make it reliable you can make it repeatable you can get into flow much more regularly and here's the bonus and i know you're going to want to drill down all the way on this but at the Flurry Research Collective because we train so many people we have enormous data sets on what works and what doesn't and um one of the things that we've learned is if you are taking regular care of your nervous system, meaning doing mindfulness, uh, we, what we usually say is, look, gratitude practice will take you five minutes to really get stress reduction from mindfulness. You need 11 to 20 minutes a day or exercise wise to get the proper stress reduction. You need about 20 to 40 minutes of exercise. You want to essentially exercise until your lungs open up. And uh, that's a global release of nitric oxide. It flushes stress hormones out of your system. It'll get quiet upstairs and your lungs are going to open up. And that's the signal that you've actually lowered anxiety levels with exercise. So under normal conditions, do one a day. If you're in one of those grinded out kind of situations, you probably want to reach for two or three a day if you have the time, right? Good news is you can get mindfulness and gratitude in about 16 minutes and everybody's got 16 minutes. Next, if you're tuning your nervous system on the front end, if you're sleeping seven, eight hours a night, have regular access to flow and have an active recovery protocol. So when your day ends, you're putting down your day and rather than just TV and a beering it, you're doing a restorative walk in nature, um, breathwork mindfulness, uh, 
restorative yoga, like light yoga, right? Uh, gardening will also work here. Uh, massage, Epsom salt baths, infrared sauna is my personal favorite. Um, all of those are active recovery protocols. And what we've discovered is if as these four pillars are in place, daily tune up of the nervous system, seven, eight hours of sleep, regular access to flow and your primary flow activity. We can come back to that in a second and an active recovery protocol. We don't think it's possible to burn out unless there's one there's. So one of the more common causes of burnout is if you have a passive aggressive boss or you have a boss who doesn't know what they want and they're always moving the goalposts, right? So your experience is like one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. If that's the situation, you will not win. Get like get yourself out of that situation. That's a very bad situation. And like unless your foundational safety and security depends on it, you know, get out. And if even if your foundational safety and security depends on it, start taking the steps to get out because you will never win. You can't psychologically, you can't win that. You can't beat that one. Yeah. The broad strokes that I'm taking away here is that burnout is an indicator that we're operating from a place of fear, right? And, and then if- it, well, burnout has, I mean, the, like the causes of burnout are fairly well established There's seven or eight of them, depending on whose list you're going by fear is, can play a role in it, but it's it, to put it in a different way. Grit without flow is burnout. To put it, you know what I mean, or grit without ter- caring for your nervous system and getting into flow is burnout. Fear is part of that equation, right? Fear is is what's screwing up your nervous system, but like lack of sleep, overwork. Etc. Etc. Like those things play, you know, huge roles. And um, when you're talking about uh, somebody who's moving the goalposts, mastery is one of the biggest intrinsic motivators we have. Maybe the master intrinsic motivator or second to flow. And mastery is is making progress towards meaningful goals. And every time you take a step forward. Uh, you get a little squirt of dopamine, dopamine plus dopamine plus dopamine plus dopamine. That's the feeling, the sensation we call momentum, right? And we love that feeling. And so the problem is not a fear problem, but if you have a passive aggressive boss, two steps forward, one step back, you're not getting any reward neurochemistry because like you're never safe. You never know, did I do it right? Did I not do it right? Like there's no, so the problem isn't just, oh, fear, anxiety, I've got too much norepinephrine. The problem is also I'm not getting the rewards from doing the work. And those rewards, especially if you're not getting into flow along the way because you're grinding to get out, those, those are the only reasons to keep going. And with a passive-aggressive boss, not enough access to flow and no sleep, you're just cooked. Okay. It's really helpful to, to lay this stuff out because it sounds like with a few adjustments, we can start to identify, say, wait a second, I'm on the right path, but I need to adjust a couple of the variables here so I can get these dopamine hits or I can get, they can start to access more of a state of flow. Here's what I always say, and I don't... You know, you have a lot of different listeners, so they span a, a bigger gap. But as a general rule, most of the people who are listening have had some success along the way, and they're trying to maximize it and get more. Now, I always tell people, if you're sort of top 30% in your field or whatever, because peak performance is nothing more than using our biology, and that biology is a limited set of tools, and actually maybe it's worth breaking this down now. When we talk about peak performance, we're really talking about four categories. There is a set of skills that's under the heading of motivation. This is 
extrinsic motivation. So stuff of money, sex, fame, stuff I'm going to work hard to get in the world. Intrinsic motivation, curiosity, passion, autonomy, mastery, right? It's also goal setting and grit. That all gets lumped other motivation. Next step is there's a bunch of learning skills. Then there's a bunch of creative skills and creative problem solving skills. And finally, there's a bunch of flow skills. And the way to put it together and the way to think about it easily is in any situation where peak performance is required, motivation gets you into the game. Learning allows you to continue to play. Creativity is how you steer, especially when you're going for high, hard goals. And how do I quite get there, right? And then flow, which is the state of optimal performance accessible to all of us, which mathematically amplifies motivation, creativity, learning, among other skills, is how we amplify the results beyond all reasonable expectations. So that's what we're talking about here. And what I always tell people is that's a limited set of it's a there's a lot of stuff in there, but it's a limited set of skills. And if you're top 30%, top 40% of your field, the only way to get there is by deploying this biology. There's no other way to do it. You may not be aware you're doing it, but the, when people read The Art of Impossible, the general experience most people have is, oh, I'm doing that. I didn't know about that. And I wasn't doing this quite right to match up with that. And, oh, this, I didn't know about this, but this I'm doing and this, right? Like, that's the general. It, but what people don't realize is because we've got these great books on parts of it. There's my books on flow, or there's amazing books by Angela Duckworth on grit, or there's phenomenal books on focus or motivation or mindfulness, blah, blah, blah. What's happened in the past five or six years in neurobiology is that we put it all together. We're like, holy crap, it's all one system designed to work together in an order. So that's what's new, and that's what I'm sort of trying to lay out in the art of possible. Yes, there's a bunch of flow stuff in there, and that may be new to some people, but what's really cool is we've actually got the formula. Like, there's a biology underneath peak performance. It's available to all of us, and we there's going to be way more to learn and nuances to discover and whatever, but, like, what we know is deadly effective, and what everybody's been using sort of up till now is based on psychology. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. My own field is perfect example is if you go back to the 90s and when they were trying to train flow using the psychology, like there's a book behind me called Flow in Sports. It's written by the godfather of flow psychology, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and his graduate student, Susan Jackson. And it's them trying to take flow psychology and use it with college and professional level athletes. And the results are very mixed not particularly good. In the past 10 to 15 years, we figured out, oh, flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. And they work one of three ways. They all drive focus into the present moment, but they drive focus by either producing dopamine or norepinephrine or lowering cognitive load. We understand the mechanism. And now if you want more flow in your life, cool, I can tell you exactly how to do it. And if you tell me a little about you, I can probably tell you which of the triggers you're gonna be more susceptible to and which ones are gonna work best like right here, right now. And it'll be, you know, as I said, we train about a thousand people a month. We measure flow using the exact, by the way, instrument that Csikszentmihalyi and Susan Jackson designed, this, the flow short scale. And we see on average a 70 to 80% boost in flow. What did they miss though? What did they miss? I get that, that they approached it from a psychological perspective. And so if you had to bottom line it. They, well, what they, they identified clear goals, the challenge skills, balance, and immediate feedback as what they called proximal conditions for flow. They didn't realize they were flow triggers. They didn't realize what they did, right? Why do clear goals work? And, um, and once you understand neurobiologically what you're doing, you know exactly how to set them and what order to set them in and how to really 
use them and it's not really amorphous. We know exactly when, a, when today, when a psychologist says clear goals to you, we know exactly what we mean because we know exactly what the neurobiological reaction, like you do it right, cognitive load goes down and you can measure that. So, What's an example of just really basic things? If, if somebody's uh, working on a process to break things down into these types of clear goals, because goals get thrown around all the time, but yeah. what, what's so, different? Okay, so let's just start at the top. Human biology is designed to require three sort of tiers of goal setting. At the top of the arc, you need all of your intrinsic motivators, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery sort of point in the same direction towards a mission statement for your life, right? I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe, same mission statement for your life, right? Underneath that, you need what are called high heart goals. These are the one to five year steps it's going to take you to start achieving your mission level. So I'm going to write a book on cooking. I'm going to go to get to journalism school. I'm going to get a job on a newspaper, whatever, right? Those are your high hard goals. And then clear goals are your daily to-do list. The actions, the steps you're going to take to achieve your high hard goals, which also point at your mission, which is all your intrinsic motivators point in the same direction. Okay. And at the bottom, clear goals are, uh, are also considered a flow trigger. So what are clear goals and how do you use them? Like, I want to be the best writer in this universe is our mission. I want to write a book on sports is my high hard goal that's in front of me right now. Today, it's, I want to write 700 words in this chapter, you know, 700 words. And I, when I'm done, I want my readers to feel the excitement of a football game or whatever, right? Like that's a clear goal. I know exactly when I'm done, 700 words, and I know the exact result I want to produce in my reader, excitement over football, right? That's a very clear goal. When you say clear goals to most Westerners and most to your audience, for sure, we hear goal. The emphasis is not about the goal. It's on the clear. You, what you're trying to get at here is clarity. What happens is now a clear goal list is nothing more than a daily to-do list, right? Just assembled in a specific order in a specific way. And I'll just break that down a little bit more. So one, why do they work? Clear goals drive flow because flow follows focus. All the flows triggers help drive attention in the present moment. There's three ways to do it. As I mentioned, you can push dopamine into our system. This is a neurochemicals, excitement, enjoyment, pleasure. We get really high. We pay a lot of attention to what's in front of us. I could do the same with norepinephrine. A little bit of norepinephrine is curiosity. A little bit more is excitement. Too much is anxiety. Whoa, this is too right. Too much stimulation. You know what I mean? The, the rock concert got too loud, right? <laughs> that's that's that same kind of call. And then, or you can lower cognitive load. All the crap you're trying to think about at any one time. I lower cognitive load. I liberate a bunch of extra energy that your brain will repurpose for paying attention to the present moment. And this drives flow. Doesn't usually work on its own. You want to use it in conjunction with a couple other flow triggers, but it's a great place to start. And what we tell people to do is end your work day by creating a clear goal list for your next day, okay, for your next work session. Now, a couple things. How to do it, what goes on the clear goals list? Well, here's what the biology tells us. One, it's really hard to fight your own circadian rhythms. I'm an extreme lark. I am most awake, most creative, most able to focus at like 334 o'clock in the morning. So that's when my workday starts. Most people are just, they, they're not like, it's eight o'clock, nine o'clock, like the life that works for them. My wife is a night owl. She doesn't wake up till four o'clock in the afternoon. Like her brain, she does her best work after 9 p.m., right? So there's copious amounts of research that says, if you can do everything you can to work in conjunction with your circadian rhythms, because it's really hard to 
beat your own internal biology in this one. So start your work session. When you create your clear goals list, goal one is the biggest, hardest task of the day and the biggest win, right? The thing that if you get it done, it's going to give you the most dopamine reward. Remember, you get a task done, you get a big dopamine reward. So you want the biggest dopamine hit you can get to get through the hardest thing first because it, it starts to provide some fuel and some momentum. And then how many things go on your clear goals list? Simple way to determine this. Run the experiment in your life. How many things can you be excellent at in a day? In other words, if it's going to take energy, because energy is a finite resource and so is willpower. These are finite resources until we sleep and eat and reboot. Um, if I got to walk my dog, that goes on the list. If I have to have a hard conversation with my wife or my mom or a coworker, right, that'll go on my list. Anything that's going to take energy um, and you know, and so the question is, how many things can you be at excellent at in a day? And obviously, this goes up and down based on what you're doing. But we all, you know, if you've been working in your in your field for a little while, you got to get a sense of, oh, like writing this report takes this much energy. Having a meeting with this woman takes this, you know, we know a little bit or we can start to guesstimate. So in my life, as, as a general rule, is about nine things I can do in a day and be excellent at all of them. And so I don't ever try to do 10. I know when my day is over. That's the other advantage of the clear goals list. This is another problem of burnout and, and, and topics and ex- peak performers and entrepreneurs. And every, like, when do you quit? When right. do you hang it up for the day, right? And you don't want to have, that's a stressful question. You don't want to debate it. You want to have a system in place that just takes the offloads it. When you finish the last item on your clear goals list, you're done for the day. There is, in my opinion, a flip side to this, which is I always say, and I think this is the most important thing you have to understand about clear goals and peak performance. And it's weird a little bit, which is, I always say the most important thing here is you have to, to do any of this work. Only there's one rule that matters above all, which is you have to keep your word to yourself. You can lie to other people. Uh, that's like, that's your own thing, whatever. I don't advise it. I think it's a bad move. And, but you, if it goes on a clear goals list, you're making a promise to yourself that you're doing it. And you have to literally get into the mindset of, I will die before I don't do this. Or, oh, wow, this took four times as long. So this was totally unrealistic. I can't be excellent at these rest of these things. Occasionally, and I mean really occasionally, you'll bump something to the next day. Um, but I try very hard not to ever do that. I really like, to me, it's a promise to myself. And I always, the way I always like to think about it is I, I always tell people, I work for the boss. The boss is the guy who thinks long-term, who has my best intentions at heart and who creates the clear goals list the night before after all the day's work is done and he's chilled out, right? The boss is not who I am in the minute because in the moment, I'm like everybody else. I want the quick fix, the easy solution, the fast high, right? I don't work for the boss. I, or I, you know, I don't work for that guy. I work for the boss. And that's how I think about all this in my own life, which is one thing that I find useful. So there's clear goals for you. There's a huge amount of knowing yourself, right? Knowing what really works for you. And instead of, wow, I listen to a lot of stuff. I read a lot of things. There's a thing that I should be doing. And I think that leads back to this 
grinding thing. I'm trying to live up to an ideal instead of actually going within. Yeah, what is my energy? Where am I? Where is my energy best? Where is my focus best? What is my energy output throughout the day? What's uniquely mine versus trying to compare yourself to others, which is a trap that that so many of us get stuck in, and I think it ultimately gets in the way of us just accomplishing what we ultimately want to accomplish. So I love that there's this place of, hey, I'm always learning, but I'm always coming back to what really works for me. And the second part is being in integrity with yourself. If at the end of the day, I want to experience that satisfaction, that peace of mind, and not just one magical day in the future when I finish my, you know, when I reach my goals, then I'm giving myself that reward. Like I did enough. I did my best today. I have that peace of mind now instead of, gosh, I'll only feel relief once I finally outrun this thing or once I finally reach that finish line. A couple of things that I always, you know, think about with that one is Stuart Brand once said that the only sustainable happiness is the satisfaction of a job well done. And I'm not sure he's 100% right kind of thing, but I think he might be like 80, 85% right. And um, when he says satisfaction of a job well done, that's the daily, like that, it's got to be the daily satisfaction. Now, I, and I, I have, you know, for, for 10 years, I've asked people to tell me about the things that um, happened to them that um, really changed their lives. Like, what were the what were the things that you, you that, that happened that changed everything? Changed your performance? Changed your opportunity on the back end? And in ten years of asking people about those moments, nobody's once told me a story about how they got lucky or won the lottery or anything else like that. It's stories about, yeah, man, I worked three jobs to put myself through night school to become an attorney to blah, blah, right? Or, you know, I trained for four years so I could climb, you know, that's, that's what you hear again and again and again. And that's another thing that people forget on the other side of this is, those are the things we love, and they're always the product of hard work. And hard work is nothing more or less than ticking off every item on your clear goals list in a day, right? Like that's like the, there's you know the 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 dirty little secret that everybody knows that nobody likes to say out loud is hard work works. Hard work works, yeah, and especially <clears throat> when we tap into the those those higher level intrinsic motivators instead of that fear-based stuff where we're grinding that we talked about earlier. I love that you're integrating that part instead of just like pushing this kind of bullshit, pissing match, drill sergeant stuff. Hard work works only if you've lined up all your intrinsic motivators because otherwise it's fucking miserable. Then right. it's just it's awful, right? Let's So let's talk about this for half a second. So I, I, we've been talking about lining up intrinsic motivators and blah, blah, blah. And what most people don't realize is Biologically, curiosity is our foundational motivator. So it's basic intrinsic driver. What does that mean what it, when we say that? It gives you focus for free. The brain is an energy hog. It burns 25% of our energy at rest. Like once you're thinking hard about something, it's using a lot of energy. Focus, especially tr you, everybody knows this. Try paying attention to something you're not curious about for a couple hours. How tired are you, right? We all have that experience. That's really freaking common. So what do you get when you're curious? Focus for free. What does that look like neurobiologically? It's a little bit of dopamine and a little bit of norepinephrine. Passion 
is literally nothing more than the intersection of multiple curiosities, right? I'm curious about three or four things. No one curiosity is enough to stay in you over the long haul. Where do three or four of them overlap? Let me play there, learn shit, have some of these easy wins, get some dopamine, do this in a specific way. And what do you have? Boom, you have passion. What does passion give you? A lot of focus for free, right? We've all fallen in love. Like you can't stop looking at him, her, the dog, the horse, like we've all had the experience of my new computer. I can't stop staring at you, thinking about you, <laughs> depending how you roll. I'm just, I'm trying to be inclusive. Um, That's, it's fun watching you try to be inclusive. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know. It's like morons on parade. <laughs> I know. You're going to okay. pull a muscle, man. <laughs> yeah, seriously, I know. <laughs> Uh, all right. Uh, so curiosity is to be built into passion. Once you have passion, you get a lot of dopamine, a lot of nor up and effort. If you couple it to something that is greater than yourself, some like I take the thing that is giving you a ton of passion and find a way to use it to help the world, to help other people, to help animals, to help plants, to help the ecosystems. Doesn't matter. The point is, from a neurobiological perspective, when you start going outside yourself. A couple things happen that make flow a little more accessible, but also you get pro-social neurochemicals like oxytocin and endorphins and serotonin. And while dopamine and norepinephrine are fun drugs, if you add in three more, like it's much more fun. So you get much more motivation, right? And once you have purpose, what does the system want? What's the freedom to pursue that purpose? You got to start aiming for autonomy and once you have autonomy, what do you want? Mastery, the skills to pursue your purpose well. That's the full intrinsic stack. Those are also all flow triggers because they all drive focus into the present moment. So if you get the stack right, bonus, get a ton more flow. The point is all this stuff moves us forward without us having to do all the hard work. The best example, the easiest example, because there's numbers, is we talked about high hard goals. Simply setting a proper high hard goal um, they got to be clear. They got there's a bunch of if them clauses that that come into how to set that, that I cover in Artem Impossible. When you get it right, and this is foundational work and goal setting theory done by John Locke and Gary Latham, redone again and again. Properly set high hard goal will give you an 11 to 25 percent boost in motivation simply for setting the goal. If in eight hour days your baseline that's like two free hours, it's an hour to two hours of work for free energetically, um, simply for having the right goal set. I mean, for the stressed out executive who is trying to get farther, faster while burning less energy, you're an idiot for not doing this because of how much you get for free. The same thing is true with flow. One of flow's foundational characteristics is it's an autotelic experience. It's joyous. It's euphoric. It, right, it's our favorite experience on earth, literally, when we, when we test and we measure and it directly correlates with well-being, life satisfaction, meaning, and purpose, and so much so that when psychologists define happiness, there are three levels of happiness, and the top two tiers are partially defined by the amount of flow you're getting access to. So huge mental health bonuses, but like once your work activity starts producing flow, you've just turned your work into the most addictive, joyful play bit of play ever, right? Like that's the actual goal, right? If your work becomes play and play produces flow and you get paid for it, that's right. That's the point as right. far as I can tell. Yeah. 
No, I love that. I love that you're coming back, that it's not just about the, the outcome. It's also about this process. And I think that you're exactly right. We want to wake up every day and be like, holy cow, I get to do this. I, I love what I'm doing. I love this process. And I and it's also working towards something. I'm not just dicking around all day. And, and uh, But yeah, we've got to, it's got to be self-directed. We've got to get out ahead of it. We can't expect to be in firefighter mode and hope that this will show up. We've got to take that more executive level time that, like you said, the boss, the boss has to come in and kind of, and set these goals, set this intention according to the things that you lay out in the book that sets the container for this work. Obviously we got to do the, the biological things, but then we've got to put all these pieces together and it's a lot. You, you've laid out some great stuff, but it's also extremely practical, ex- extremely useful. What's the you one know, thing though? Oh, go ahead. It, sound, it, sound, it sounds like a lot, but uh, to get into the game, you got some shit to do, right? But once you're in the game and moving forward, it's, um, I, I, you know, I, I always tell people I have a family. I run, I 70 people work for me. I writing books is a full-time career to go with that. Giving speeches and all that stuff is another, I have about three different careers, you know, and the same kind of home life everybody else has. Um, and so, I, you know, what works for me may not work for you, but like, I sort of figure if I can find the time to do this stuff, you probably can too. Beautiful. What's the one thing if, if, you know, to inspire the guy to go out and get this book, what's the one thing that he could start doing today? Uh, that would, that would help him move him. That would nudge him in that right direction. Positive psychology says, look, if you're interested in big performance, there's six things you need to do three on the physical side to have enough energy to perform at your best and three on the mental side, right? We covered the mental, the cognitive tune-ups, mindfulness, gratitude, right? So the physical side, we've covered most of it also. It's hydration, nutrition, seven, eight hours of sleep a night and a, and a fairly robust social support protocol. Like you got to have people around you who love you and you got to reach out and talk to them um, a little bit. It's important for energy. And then the literally like I train people on that. And then the next thing we do is clear goals. So like those are the first seven steps in a sense. And they're really, I, I actually think the, the, the best place to start. So any of, any of those, any of those things are, are all deadly effective. Okay. It's all laid out in the book. It's very clear, very practical. Uh, go check out the art of impossible, a peak performance primer, Stephen Collar. Thanks again for coming back. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.